ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له نشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله my dear respected sisters assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh so, because there's not many of us today, we'll try and make this an interactive session, inshallah. I understand that last week you discussed the rights of the parents in Islam, and today, and of course that was an extremely important topic, because the rights of the parents are from those things that are almost so intrinsically a part of our religion, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that after shirk, the second next major sin is to disobey the parents. So the rights of the parent is not something to be sort of understated, extremely important. And whether our parents are with us or whether they're not, whether they are Muslim, whether they're not, whether they are, you know, practicing, whether they're not, whether they are good to you, whether they're not, whether they are, they are just, whether they are not, it's an intrinsic part of our religion. It's not dependent upon what the other party is saying or doing. You know, that is the right of a parent. Um, so may Allah grant us the ability to, to sort of understand that. So that's something that you covered last week. Today, inshallah, we're going to be looking at it from the flip side, from the other side, that what rights does a child have in the religion of Allah? What rights does a child have? So before we begin then, let's just have a brief sort of um, demographic <laughs> questionnaire here. So how many of you are parents? So how many of you have got children? Okay, a few and the rest of you are obviously... Everybody's a child, but not everybody mm. is a parent. So, okay, alhamdulillah. So, I'm going to be looking at about five things in the religion that, um, you know, scholars have sort of summarized as to be the right that a child has over his parents in the religion. So, any sort of, anybody wants to start us off, what do you think they might be? The right of um, gaining knowledge. Okay. From the Okay. When they're little. Yeah, yeah of course, yeah. yeah. Okay, good. So the child has a right that the parent educates them. Mm. And when you say education, what do you mean? Religious education, is that what um, you said? Well, it can be a holistic one as well, generally. Okay. But knowing your kind of fundamentals, your basics of your... Okay, good. Mashallah, yeah. So education. What else? Provision. Provision, yes. Okay, so giving them, you know, food, a roof, shelter. food, shelter. shelter. Okay, all of those things, good. The right to... Um, Choosing a good other parent, like for instance, if I'm getting married, I need to choose a righteous okay, excellent, uh, good. person. Yeah. So that will be the father of my children. Yes, yes. Okay, excellent, good. Anything else? Good name. Good name. Yes. Yeah. Okay, I think you're all on the correct lines here. Yes. So there are those rights that are attached to even before the child is born. So even before a child comes into this world, Allah has given that child certain rights. And then obviously after the child is born, then the rights increase in number. Now, there is a narration of Umar anhu where this issue is discussed. Because once somebody came to him complaining about uh, the father, so there was a child who came to complain that his father was not treating him right, etc. And Umar anhu, after he assessed the situation, he then taught the father that look, you as a responsible adult, as somebody that Allah has given a responsibility over this child that you brought into this world, that child also has rights over you. 
And when we say rights, we're talking about the concept that if these rights are unfulfilled, this person will be held accountable in front of Allah. That's what we mean by a right. Something that Allah Azza wa Jal will hold you accountable for as a parent. So Umar radiallahu anhu's narration, it begins with, like the sister over here mentioned, choosing a good parent for your child. But before we go on to that, I want to add another one to that. So we're going to start off with the first right that I would say a child, before they even come into being, before they even come into this world, has over you as a parent. And that would be the right of you having made dua for them before they've even come into the dunya. And this is something that we see throughout the Qur'an. We see the prophets making dua, not only just to have offspring, not only just to have children, which of course is a sort of natural inclination that both men and women have, that you want to increase your progeny and you want to you know, raise them and nurture them and love them. But alongside making dua that Allah gives you a child, there is an element of making dua that Allah gives you a child that you will be able to fulfill the rights of giving you a child that is going to be uh, a righteous child, a pious child, someone that is going to benefit the society, etc. So the most famous du'as that we have in the Qur'an regarding offspring, they incorporate this. For example, and this is something that I'm sure all of us must know, and if we don't know, we should be memorizing and reciting after every single salah. But Allah Azza wa Jal teaches us in the Qur'an, رَبَّنَا هَبْلَنَا مِنْ أَزْوَاجِنَا وَذُرِّيَاتِنَا قُرَّةَ عَأْيٌ وَجْعَلْنَا لِلْمُتَّقِينَ إِمَامًا that Allah grant us spouses, number one, which we're going to come to in a second. Grant us, you know, a husband and a wife that are going to be the coolness of our eyes, meaning they're going to make us happy, they're going to make us content. They are going to allow us to, you know, instill the love of Allah in our homes and in our hearts together. And O oh Allah, grant us children that are going to be the coolness of our eyes. And not only that though, you know, the last part of the dua is, وَجْعَلْنَا لِلْمُتَّقِينَ إِمَامًا That make us... Me, my husband, and the children that oh Allah you're going to bless us with, make us leaders for the people of taqwa, for the people of righteousness. By leaders, we're not talking about not necessarily somebody that is you know, in control of the society, somebody that has status, no. Some of the mufassirun say that a leader of the muttaqeen is a person who revives the sunnah of the Prophet in their, their communities and their homes. So, you know, this is a dua that we're making before, you know, maybe, you know, we've got young girls here that are not married. Maybe you're not even thinking about getting married yet. But the dua has to begin from now. That you make dua that Allah gives you a husband and that Allah gives you children that you and them together are now going to revive the religion of Allah, the sunnah of the Prophet in your communities and your homes. Extremely important. Likewise, Ibrahim salam is an excellent example of this, of how powerful a dua can be when it is made for people, for children, for progeny that you, you may never even live to see them growing up. But our belief as Muslims is that there is a responsibility, that the religion of Allah is something that is above and beyond ourselves. Our overriding objective is to establish the religion of Allah on this earth. Some of us are going to do it in certain capacities, some of us in others. But this has to be the forefront of everything that we do to please Allah. So when we raise our children, 
not only are we thinking about from a worldly perspective, you know, mashallah, we're going to educate them and they're going to benefit society through their jobs and their taxes, they'll look after us. These are all secondary things though. But our objective when we get married and, you know, we are trying to conceive a child should be that we want, oh Allah, this child to be a sort of flag bearer for your religion. Because that is what we want. Otherwise, if we don't have that concern, if the Sahaba didn't have that concern, if the people after them didn't have that concern, everybody would be worried about themselves only. You'd go and chase the dunya as much as you wanted, but the religion would have been neglected. The way that it reached us today was because of the concern of good people, of pious people. And we need to have that concern. Otherwise, you know, just imagine 150 years from now, 200 years from now, what is the, the outline of Muslims in Great Britain going to be? Are they going to be, you know, masajid in abundance? Are they going to be, you know, boys and girls walking the streets, you know, in hijab? Are brothers going to be growing beards? Are the sisters going to be, you know, representative of the wives of the Prophet ﷺ? Is religion as a whole, even in the Western world, in 102 years, 100 years time, going to be recognizable? We worry about short-term goals, but we don't often think about, they're still our progeny, they're still part of us because our lineage is going to go to these you know, people that are going to come way after this. We're not going to see them, we're not going to know who they are, we're not going to know what they look like until the day of judgment. This is our progeny and we should make dua for them from now. And this is what Ibrahim did. The dua that I just read to you beforehand, that was a dua of Ibrahim as well. But the one that I want to focus on is one from Surah Baqarah. No, I'm not a hafidh of the Quran, so I'm going to have to sort of read it from here. Where Ibrahim salam, he says, he makes dua to Allah, that Rabbana waj'alna muslimayni laka wa min dhurriyatina ummatan muslima lak wa arina manasikana wa tub alayna innaka anta tawabur rahim Rabbana wab'at fiha fihim rasoolan minhum yatlu alayhim ayatik wa ya'allimhum al-kitaba wal-hikma wa yuzakihim innaka anta al-aziz al-hakim You know, subhanAllah, I just want you to... Just ponder over the, the translation of this. This is Ibrahim Islam, you know, millennia ago now. We're talking about two, three thousand years ago. He's making a dua that, oh Allah, make us Muslims for you. So he's talking about himself and he's talking about his sons that are there, his family that are there directly. You know, that makes sense. It's understandable. We make these kind of duas for ourselves and our immediate family. Then he says, and from our progeny that is going to come, make them a nation that is Muslims. Not just individual, individual benefit, but the people that are going to come after me from my lineage, make all of them into a nation of Muslims. Then he makes dua, oh Allah, from amongst these people, send to them a messenger that is going to recite to them your book and that is going to teach them wisdom, etc. This dua was answered what, 2,000 years later, when the Prophet ﷺ was born? He's making dua, Ibrahim ﷺ, that, Oh Allah, from my progeny, send them a messenger that is going to revive your religion. And thousands of years pass, and then Allah Jalla, he accepts that dua. And in Makkah, you know, the, 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 the beginning of life as we know it today, it starts. You know, the Prophet ﷺ, he changed the face of mankind. For Muslims are non-Muslims. But what he bought and what he did, it sort of changed the way that the world was going to function. So this is the power of dua. That from a young age, you know, from your teach your sons, your daughters, from the age that they can start speaking, you know, five, six, seven years old, this is a dua that we should be making. Because dua is extremely powerful. It's not enough 
to you know the, the day before you get married or you know after you get married and now you know you're thinking of having children just to start then I mean some people do and if we are in a position where we haven't thought about this before then it's never too late but think about the benefit that you can derive by starting early on so make dua and have that concern for you know the people that are going to come after us especially I would say you know subhanAllah every day almost we were just having this discussion in the car as well about you know what's happening in terms of the things that are being taught to our children in schools and how the, the moral fabric of society is kind of being eroded. And parents are becoming more concerned. You know, uh, some pa parents are maybe still oblivious to, to what's happening, what their children are doing, you know, in their bedrooms, on the TV, on social media, in schools, their friends. But there are parents that are now getting concerned as to what is being taught and all of these things. But my point is that this concern shouldn't just be limited to the people that are our direct beneficiaries. If we have a concern for the religion of Allah, everybody's child is our child. And everybody's pain becomes our pain. When there is, you know, somebody that you have heard of whose, whose child has Billah, left the fold of Islam, it's not enough for us to think that, oh, it's them and it won't happen to us. It happening to them means that it's already happened to us. That you hear about somebody's, you know, uh, son and daughter, they're, you know, they're, they're having, you know, illegal relationship outside of marriage. Somebody's daughter has got pregnant outside of marriage. Somebody's son is on drugs. All of these ills in society, they are a taint and there should be like stabs in the back of each and every one of us because they are our children. And not only that, but they are our ummah. They are the ones with us that are going to be the representatives of Islam. On the day of judgment, inshallah, we're going to be raised together. If we all want to go and, you know, on the... hope it's okay, inshallah. If we want to be... Uh, our thirst to be quenched at the hand of the Prophet ﷺ on the day of judgment, his ummah will be there. So these people that we're going to be standing side to side with, shoulder to shoulder with, these are people that right now are living and talking and, you know, existing amongst us. But often we don't give each other, you know, a second thought, let alone making dua for one another. We'll pass each other by in the street and we don't give salam to one another. We're very like, you know, nafsi, nafsi. We're keeping ourselves to ourselves, but the religion isn't like that. The religion is not about just me, myself and I. It is about everybody in the society. So that's the first thing I wanted to start off. So the first right a child has over you as mothers is going to be even before they are born, make dua for them. Make dua for yourself, for your, for your spouse, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your great-great-grandchildren, and everybody else in society. Yeah? The second thing then is the rights that the child has over you in terms of choosing a good mother or a father for them. So even before this child has come into the world, you know when you are making that decision of getting married and when you are considering suitors. I mean, I'm going to talk about husbands here because we're all women here. But when you are considering, you know, a, a pres prospective partner, a spouse to get married to, you are going to look at whether he can, you know, financially look after you. Maybe you're going to look at attraction. You're going to look at his family sort of setup. You're going to see what he does, what his job is, what his education is. And all of these things are, you know, they're, they're fine to consider. But we have to think about the character of this person that you are going to be spending the rest of your life with, the one that you are going to be, you know, having a child with, because you cannot change people. You can't. No, not before marriage, not after marriage. It's impossible. We can work on ourselves, but you won't be able to change other people. Now, imagine a scenario where you get married for 
all the other reasons under the sun except for his religion, except for his character. And then your child is born and this child, you know, he, he, he the, the, the husband, he swears, you know, he's got a bad, you know, mouth, foul mouth. He spends time, you know, outside with his friends all the time. He doesn't pray himself. You know, he deals with interest. He doesn't really care about halal and haram, where it comes from. All of these things that you might have overlooked before because, you know, you were in a, this excitement of getting married. But now, when you are trying to raise your child upon good principles, these are the things that are going to be the biggest, biggest thorn in your path. Because your child is going to be a, a sort of culmination of you and him. You know, the mother and the father, generally speaking, especially in the early years, that child is going to be a representative of how you are as a mother and how he is as a father. And if you've chose a man that is not principled, even though he might have the money and he might have the education and he might have, you know, the looks, etc. But you missed out on the most important thing, which is why the Prophet ﷺ advised to the Sahaba as well, that when you're looking for a woman to get married to, and it works the other way around, but the Hadith mentions that when you are looking for a woman to get married to, women are often married for four things. One is for her beauty. Likewise with a man, you know, women want someone that they're attracted to. So you want to find someone that you have that mutual attraction with. That's fine. Women are also married for their uh, lineage. So you want someone from a good family. You know, it's an upright family. They've got like family connections, etc. That's fine as well. Um, beauty, lineage, uh, what's the other one? Wealth, sorry, yes. You're going to look for somebody that is, um, has wealth so that you can have an easy life. Especially when it comes to men, because you know they're going to be the financial providers of the house, etc. So these are all important things. Then the Prophet said that the fourth thing that a woman is married for is her religion, for her deen. Put this first, make this your first criteria, and you will become successful. We're not saying that the others aren't important. Of course, you know, have find someone that you can get on with and that attraction is there and that you can have a comfortable life with. But if you put those three ahead of the religion then no good will come out of it not short term and not long term when you have children but if he's got the religion and then he has the other things then that's just an extra bonus so look for these things if he is you know the relationship that he has with his mother that will tell you so much about what the the guy is going to be like and what he's going to be like with your daughters and with your sisters etc look at how punctual he is in his salah it will show you how disciplined he is when it comes to halal and haram Look at all of these things, and I know it's not a marriage talk, so we don't need to go into detail, but these things are going to give you an insight as to, can I raise a child with this man? Not just living with him for six, seven months, you know, eight months, and having a good time with him, but am I going to be comfortable and happy with this man as a father for my child? And you know, the, the roots of, of sin... They last for a very, very long time. This is something that I was reading, you know, quite recently. Um, and some of the scholars, they mention that why is it that in an Islamic society, if a child is born out of wedlock, you know, it's not the child's fault. Of course, you know, the mom and the dad or the boy and the girl, they've had a relationship that they should have been happy, having. And now a child is born out of wedlock. But this child, even in an Islamic sort of state, he is treated sometimes, in some facets of society, he's treated differently to a child that is born in wedlock. And this, the scholars mention, is because of the, you know, the nature of immorality, is that it doesn't stop after a certain stage. 
you don't know how far the effects of sin and disobedience will go. If you start off your marriage in the wrong way by, you know, dating or whatever else, you're doing things that you shouldn't have been doing. And then even if you get married to that person, illa mashallah, there are many people that, that this happens to and they repent and they turn back to Allah. But I'm talking about the other scenario where people do this and then they get married and then problems start occurring in their life or children start becoming disobedient. Scholars mention very explicitly that bad character is also something that is genetic, we can say. Maybe not in a biological sense. You might think, how, is, you know, how are these things uh, inherited? But even, I can say, you know, psychology studies and textbooks that I have, I have read, personality, part of it, is something that is part of your DNA. So this personality, you know, you, you see children that are born, you know, two days old, three days old babies, and you see that they have separate personalities. It's not something that is completely learnt later on. There is an element of personality existing at birth. And in order to sort of maximise the, 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 the blessing that we want in our life and in our children's life, we have to sh make sure that we choose a husband that is going to be, you know, one of religion, of character. But the way that we marry him as well is going to be in a way that is pleasing to Allah. Because we don't want any bad effects of our disobedience or our, of our sin to continue through into our womb and into the next generation that is going to, be, to come. This is going to be a massive disservice that we are doing to our children. And this is not taken from hadith, but there are scholars that say that this is something that a child possibly can hold his parents to account for on the day of judgment. That because of you, I inherited these bad traits and this bad personality because of sins that you committed. So this is something that we want to stay away from. And none of us are perfect. We do commit sin you know, on a, on a regular basis. So always turning back to Allah, repenting, this is something that we should always, always do. The Prophet ﷺ was free of sin, but he used to seek Allah's forgiveness many, many times a day, up to 70 times. The next thing then, after choosing a righteous spouse, so you know, you, you, you've made dua from a young age, you know, your teenage daughters, you're teaching them about the importance of asking Allah for everything, including children that are, you might not even be imagining right now. Then you are, you know, looking to get married and you do it in the right way, you know, without any sin involved. And then as you're considering your spouse, you look for the right things and keep in mind the long term goals, not just short time, what sort of makes you happy and excites you, but long term, you want to have children with this person. So is he going to be good for that? Then in your marriage, you need to ensure that you're, again, this is all to do with character, it's all to do with principle, that you are from then, even before you are pregnant, that you are behaving in a manner that you would want your future child to behave in. That you are a mother, uh, not a mother, but you are a wife now, a woman, who is praying her salah punctually, that you are refraining from backbiting, from gossiping, from swearing, from watching things that you shouldn't be watching, all of these things that are, you know, sins in the eyes of Allah, but they are things that once they become habits of your character, it's going to be very difficult to reverse them. So you've started a new phase of your life. Maybe now's the time then to start making those changes that you hadn't considered before, because often it's easier to make changes when, you know, you're starting afresh. So we all have bad traits that we've got from a young age, teenage years, at college, university. You pick up things. But when you're looking to get married, perhaps, maybe now's the time to reflect and think, me as a person, would I be happy 
you know, as if, if on the day of judgment, my child was to stand in front of Allah, will my child be happy at the fact that he had me as a mother? Or will this child be, you know, upset and angry at the fact that Allah had chosen me as a mother for him? You know, often we think of it the other way around. We all want children that are going to be good and pious and, and you know, nice to us and give us comfort and the coolness of our eyes. But the other way around as well, are we going to be mothers that are that comfort and that coolness for the child? So that's important as well, that we keep that in mind, that we've got married and make sure our character and all of the things that we are doing, they are things that we would be happy with our children doing as well. Because you, once a child is born and these habits are fixed, everything that you say, everything that you do, the tone of your voice, the way that you are with your husband, with your in-laws, your child is absorbing all of this, all of it, from, you know, from the time that child is in your stomach to the time that they are you know, uh, grown up, five, six, seven years old, teenagers, they are picking up on everything that is being said, everything that is being done, and they are going to become a part of little, a little mini you. So are you going to be happy to see a mini you in the future running around the house? You know, if you've got bad, you know, bad etiquette, you don't speak nicely, you use slang, you swear a lot, you might not think much of it now, but would you want your child, you know, your little daughter, your little son to be doing the same thing? So you start from then, eliminate these bad characteristics from our, from our lives. Then when we are thinking of, you know, having a child, of getting pregnant, etc., we ensure that all of these things are done in the name of Allah. And there are du'as that you can look upon, you know, in Fortress of a Muslim, in a du'a book, etc. That when, you know, a husband and wife are planning to have a child, with planning to conceive, du'as are read. So that you're, from then, before, you know, even the, you know, insemination, before the conception even, you are making du'a to Allah to remove the effects of shaitan from this, from this union. That you don't want shaitan to touch this child. Everything in the name of Allah, with the barakah of Allah, and seeking refuge in Allah from the accursed shaitan. So learn these du'as. These are something things that should be standard when a girl and a boy are getting married, that you know these things, you know the du'as that should be read, etc. So in the marriage now, you're, you're trying to work on yourself, good character, am I going to be a good mother? When you are with your husband and you're planning you know, a pregnancy, planning to get pregnant, you have the correct du'as that you're reading and you know, all of this is being done in, in, in the correct manner. Then when you are pregnant, this is when it sort of really hits home often for a lot of, uh, for a lot of women because now Allah has given you, you know, a massive, massive blessing, first of all. Let, let's not forget that. This is not a, a small thing. It's not, you know, often the blessings of Allah, you know, may Allah, may Allah forgive us, we often overlook them and we aren't thankful to Allah. However, the blessing of a child is probably one of the greatest blessings that we can experience in this life after the sweetness of Iman. Which is why in the Quran, so many of the prophets, you know, Allah tests the people that He loves, and Allah did test the prophets with withholding children from them until a time came when Allah was ready to give them. The likes of Ibrahim, the likes of Zakaria, for decades, years and years and years, they were deprived of a child. And they continuously made dua, though, not despairing in the mercy of Allah. Because when you know Allah, and you know that Allah is able and all-powerful and all-capable of doing everything. Nothing is impossible. You know that it's all a matter of timing. That Allah can give and Allah will give if we turn to him in sincerity. However, the timing not, might not be according to our timing. You know, women that are and men that are struggling to conceive, struggling to get pregnant, you, you, will, you appreciate then how 
big a blessing this is for a woman to to get pregnant to have this you know great blessing that Allah has given a blessing that the prophets made dua for a blessing that Allah has withheld from many people and a blessing that Allah gives many people who are ungrateful for it but this is the plan of Allah we don't dictate and we don't uh, complain about the qadr of Allah Allah himself says in the Quran that there are going to be people to whom I give only sons and there are going to be people that I give only daughters there are going to be people that I give a mixture of sons and daughters and there are going to be people of my slaves who I give no children at all this is just the decree of Allah but we are content and we are happy with the qadr of Allah but it doesn't mean that you don't ask it doesn't mean that you despair it doesn't mean that you don't make a dua but dua is made in the correct manner with sincerity like Ibrahim Islam, like Zakaria Islam, in old old age Allah gave them children and the interesting thing is that they didn't make dua to have children just for the sake of having children you know and often and our society is unfortunately like this as well that we when a woman is not married we're judging her for not being married and when she's married we're judging her for not having children and then when she's got children we're judging her for having too many children or not enough children that's just the way that the society is you can't please everybody but like i said at the beginning our aim objective of having children has to be to please allah when Zakaria he makes dua to Allah, though Allah my bones have become weak and my hair has become grey and grant me somebody that is going to be an heir of me. His, his intention was that, oh Allah, if I die now, who is going to teach the religion of Allah to the people? He was a prophet and he wanted a son, not because, you know, what the people were saying or because he wanted a son to look after him or for the honor or for the fame. No, but he wanted a son so that the religion of Allah could continue. And Allah accepted that dua, subhanAllah, and he gave him in a very old age and his wife was infertile. His wife was barren. But Allah is ala kulli shay'in qadid. Allah can do anything. So when the intention is correct and the dua is there and you're turning to Allah, even though the timing might not be the timing that you expect, Allah will give. So firstly, appreciate the blessing. When you become pregnant, it's not a small thing. There are people in the world that are, that are crying to Allah, begging to be in the position that you are in. So when you are pregnant, then you are grateful to Allah. You thank Allah. You constantly pray, you know, um, Salatul Shukr even, Sajdatul Shukr. These are important things to show to Allah that Allah, we, we understand how big a blessing you have bestowed upon us. Then as you are pregnant, you know, we all know, you know, and as science has developed, we know even more, I suppose, to, to compare to the people of the past, how what a mother does, what she takes into her body, what she listens to, the things that she eats, the environment that she exposes herself to, all of this has an impact on the child that is growing inside of the womb. So if you listen to music, whilst you are pregnant, that effect will go to the child. If you listen to Quran when you are pregnant, that effect will go into the child. If you eat haram food, or you, if you eat non-nutritional food, we know that that will affect the child, the child will grow up with you know, a lack of vitamins, etc. Which is why when women are pregnant, the multivitamins and all of these things are there, the doctors tell you, so that you can ensure a healthy baby. Likewise, not just eating food of nutrition, but eating food that is pure eating food that is halal because you are growing a baby now with the things that are inside of you therefore ensure that even more so than before your food is halal it is you know uh, not junk food you're eating the right things you are listening to the right things even the things that you are saying because they say that you know a child can 
can um, recognizes the, the voice of the mother from inside the womb. So if you're constantly going to be shouting, you know, your head off and screaming and swearing, the child will be impacted. But if you speak in a nice way to your, you know, your husband and the family and all of these people around you, the child will have a calm temperament. Likewise, you try your best, and this is sometimes obviously outside of people's control, that you don't expose yourself to stress if you can avoid it. Because this is something that also has long-term impacts on the baby that is going to be born. And sometimes we stress ourselves out, which is the reality. So when you're pregnant, you try and, you know, calm down. Maybe you're a person that stresses too much about worldly things, about money and about jobs, etc. Take some time out, relax, so that you are in the right frame of mind for this child that is growing inside of you. And sometimes, you know, may Allah protect all of us and grant us afia. Sometimes there is stress in your life that you can't control. But what you can control is the way that you react to it to a certain degree. So you might have family situations going on or financial situations or in-laws or husband. That is not ideal. But your overriding sort of objective is going to be that I'm going to try and control the way that I react to this. I'm going to try not to stress too much because I know that Allah is in control. I'm going to leave it to Allah. I'm going to do the right things. I'm going to be worshipping Allah. And all of these things, I know that they'll never harm me unless Allah has decreed it. And I know that people can't benefit me unless Allah has decreed it. So you try and take a more conscious effort to repel negativity and stresses, hanging out with the right people. Maybe there's certain people in your family and friends that stress you out, therefore avoid their company. These are general life skills. It's not specific to pregnancy, but I'm saying even more so in pregnancy because that child that is growing inside of you is feeding off this positivity and this negativity, etc. So in pregnancy, making sure that you do things the right way, you know, going for the scans and eating the right food, all of that is part of your journey now. Before you've, you even become a mother, this child, you are serving them. And you know that every single thing that you do for that child in pregnancy is going to be an act of worship for you, inshallah. So don't think of it as negative. Don't complain about things. Take everything with positivity that you made dua once upon a time to be in this position. Allah has put you in this position, therefore you appreciate it. Even, you know, amongst all the morning sickness and the, the pain and all of the that stuff that comes along with it. But still, you know, alhamdulillah, you thank Allah for giving you this experience and this, you know, positive uh, life changer. Then when the child is born, and by the way, throughout pregnancy, as, as you know, that salah is something that is not dropped. Generally, women, they, we, we have a gap in our, in our prayer once a month when you have your monthly cycle. But generally, in pregnancy, you don't have that. Therefore, there is no salah being missed. In that nine months, there is a continuous connection to Allah. There's no break, no off. So make sure that your salah is punctual and you're praying on time and the connection is there. And when you can't stand up anymore, you sit. And when you can't sit anymore, you lie down or whatever it may be. But the salah is not missed ever because you want to start things off the right way. The way you want to start your marriage in the right way, you want to start your pregnancy in the right way as well. Then, you know, fast forward nine months or, you know, before that, if Allah, if Allah decrees. When the child is born, the next right that Umar anhu mentioned is the right of naming that child a good name. Naming the child a good name. And sometimes, you know, I know a lot of people want to name their children the most obscure and, you know, a name that nobody has ever heard of in the history of, of mankind before. You want a fashionable name, a cool name. 
I suppose there's nothing wrong with that. As long as the, the meaning of the name is good, that's fine. You can name your child whatever you know the family are happy with, husband and wife agree upon. But you know, we, we need to bear in mind that there can be no names, no word in the English language, the Arabic language, the Urdu language, in any language on the planet that is going to be better than the names that Allah chose for his prophets and the names that the Sahaba, etc. they had. Because they were the best of people. So it's almost as if you've already got like a head start for your child in terms of be, being beloved to Allah. And the Prophet said in a hadith that the most beloved names to Allah are Abdullah and Abdul Rahman. So, you know, names like that, even though they might not be, you know, your family might not be into, you know, Islamic names or whatever the case might be, you do what is right by your child. Choose a name, you know, choose the name of a prophet, you know, such beautiful names. And there's so many as well. It's not as if we're restricted. Look at the names of the Sahaba, so many amazing names. And they have, you know, good, strong meanings in the Arabic language. However, if you want to choose any name outside of the Arabic language as well, there's nothing wrong with that. But just ensure that it has a good meaning, that you're not just choosing it for the sake of it being fashionable and cool, but it's a good name. And the best names are those names that are attached to the servitude of Allah. Like Abdullah means the slave of Allah. So the fact that you've got, you know, this child already connected to the word Allah in name, you know, subhanAllah, you've already given them, like I said, a head start that this child already has now a connection to Allah, even before they can speak, before they can eat, before they can do anything. So choose names like that, Abdullah, Abdurrahman, Abdurrahim. Anything, you know, for a boy that is connected to the name of Allah is good. And for a girl as well, you can do the same thing. Amatullah, Amatul Rahman. They all mean the same thing. Slave girl, slave boy of Allah. Or choose the wives of the Prophet ﷺ, choose the Sahabiyat, etc. And you can only do that, obviously. We can only do that if we know about these people. So whilst you're pregnant, whilst you're looking to get married, or before even you're even thinking about getting married, we need to have that connection with the book of Allah and with the seerah of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. You're not gonna, you know, often when people have had a child, they'll message around saying, "Oh, can you suggest a name for my child, etc." And you might give them a fairly like standard name that of a Sahaba, but they've never heard of it. So it's your job as a, as a mother and as a father to choose a name. It's not anybody else's responsibility. I'm not saying you can't ask people. Of course, ask people if you don't know. But before you do that, ask yourself why you don't know. What has held you back from learning the names of the legends of Islam? What has held us back from learning the names of the prophets that are going to be, you know, uh, straight into Jannah without any hisab that Allah chose? The name of the Sahaba, the, you know, the, 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 the ten that have been guaranteed Jannah. How many of them do we know? The wives of the Prophet ﷺ, the daughters of the Prophet. We should know them so that we don't have to rely on asking other people. So choosing a good name for your child. And I'm sure, you know, if I was to go around and ask people um, for, for examples in your life where you have seen the effects of a name of, uh, on a child, I'm sure some of you will be able to give examples. And I can think of examples from my own family and friends as well that the name that you give to a child, it does somehow affect the personality of that child. For example, if you name your child, um, I can't think of uh, a non-Islamic name from the top of my head. <laughs> I do remember once when we were, I was in, in college, one of the girls who was in my class, uh, she used to, she was very much into like, um, you know, celebrities and, you know, pop stars and stuff like that. So she used to say that, you know, when I have a, have a boy, I'm going to name him Jaheem. That was something that was, it was like a cool name back then. I can't remember. I think it was the name of a, 
of an actor maybe or something like that I, I don't remember so she just really liked the name that looked Jahim and I didn't know any better we were like okay that's, that's a nice name fair enough it's only after you study the Arabic language that you understand that Jahim means the hellfire now imagine that all the billah naming your child something like that just because we didn't give it thought because we didn't research and that's our job as parents to do that research and choose a proper name so um, I forgot what I was going to say but yeah regarding choosing a good name ensure that we uh, do mashra with people go to a pious person people obviously often do this go to a scholar that you trust or a person that is uh, pious in your family and choose a name and it doesn't have to be a name that nobody has heard of before in the if you ever have read like sort of Islamic books or books of hadith etc you will see that the same name continues for generations you will have Muhammad, son of Muhammad, son of Muhammad, son of Muhammad. And it's fine. You know, you don't have to. The son can be named the same name as the father. The father can be the same name as the grandfather. It's not really a big deal. You know, we make it into big deals because we want fancy names. But the best of names, obviously, are the names that Allah has chosen for his beloved. Therefore, you know, Muhammad or, you know, Adam, Idris, Nuh, Ibrahim, all of these are beautiful names. And they will impact the personality of your child. So that was the next thing. After that then is doing the sort of initiation of your child into the dunya. So there's certain things that we do Islamically, like the tahniq for a child, which is when you get sort of chewed up date and you get somebody pious or somebody elder in your family to put it, put it you know, on the gums or the palate of the child. And again, this is almost a symbolic thing, even though studies have been done recently to show the benefits of that on a young baby exposing them to that you know natural sweetener it has positive impact on their immune system and stuff like that but all of that aside this is a sunnah of the prophet so we need to know about it so that you plan in advance you know it's a, it's a joyous moment it's something that we should be planning and preparing and looking forward to all the family should know about it you know the eldest in the family should come whether it's to the hospital, whether it's to the home, you've got the dates that you have already ordered beforehand, you know, from Medina, etc. You make it into a thing so that you are attaching importance to the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, rather than worrying about baby showers before the child is born. Then when the child is born, you know, having the balloons and the dessert tables and the flowers, all of these things are, you know, alhamdulillah, we're showing, you know, gratefulness to Allah that Allah has given us, you know, a little bundle of joy. But they're all secondary. If you're forgetting about the important things, you haven't even thought about the tahneef or the dates or the zamzam or these things, you know, we're doing a disservice to the child. So the sunnah of the Prophet has to come first, doing the tahneef properly. Then there's other things like the shaving of the head naming the child, doing the aqiqa for those people that want to, you know, sacrificing an animal, uh, you know, shaving the head and then weighing it and giving that amount in charity. All of these things, you know, a, a prospective mother and father should read upon so that we know the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, so that right from when the child is born, we have started this process of them being attached to the religion of Allah and the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ. The adhan being done in the ear, the iqama being done in the ear. These aren't secondary things. I know sometimes, you know, uh, people, they get so bogged down with the whole hospital experience and the flowers and then the car seats and all of these things which are important. But then, you know, three days later, they remember about doing the adhan in the ear. You know, this isn't good enough. The first thing a child should hear in this dunya is the name of Allah. And if you delayed it, you know, three days, four days, five days, you know, this is not good. So that's another right that the child has over the parents. And then finally, is like the sister over there mentioned regarding the upbringing of the child. And this 
begins from pregnancy, like I said, being careful about what you speak, what you say, the things that you expose yourself to. And then as soon as a child is born, a child does not have to be speaking. You know, they don't need to be a toddler for them to be uh, absorbing what is happening around them. It happens very, very early on. You know, the way that you are, the way that you dress, the things that you wear, the things that you eat, all of this, the child is absorbing, is becoming a part of them. So upbringing, it begin, begins when the child is in your lap. Therefore, reciting Qur'an to them, as soon as the child can speak, you know, the, the words that should be coming out of their mouth are the words of Allah, you know, teaching them Allah, teaching them la ilaha illallah. The child can't understand yet. We know that the child is, is not uh, accountable for these things. We know that. But you are exposing them to goodness so that this goodness infuses in them so that when they become older, the path of religion is facilitated for them because you started them early on, memorizing surahs, when the child is now speaking, the du'as of going to sleep, the du'a of waking up, you know, teaching them about the sunnas of daily life, going into the toilet with the left foot, coming out with the right foot, uh, you know, uh, the eating du'a, eating with the right hand, all of these little, little things. Well, they're not little. I mean, I, I say little, but they're not little. You know, I don't want you to think that they are minor things in our religion the sunnah of allah is actually the sunnah of the prophet is actually very very great it's very grave these things are going to mold your personality and your connection with allah so they're not small things so starting from when you wake up in the morning and again you can't teach your children if you're not doing it yourself so waking up in the morning and reading the dua then going to the bathroom with the correct foot then you know doing wudu in the correct manner all the duas of wudu using the miswak brushing your teeth in the right way cleanliness hygiene istinja all of these things and then the eating of the food the way that we eat the way that we prepare our food it has to be halal it has to come from these sources going to the supermarket getting them to check things all of these things are important because if you don't instill them at this age they will reach secondary school they will reach college and you can't reverse these things they're going to be averse they're not going to care about halal and haram they're not going to care about you know going into the car and reading the dua leaving the house and reading the dua going to sleep and you know seeking the protection from allah these are things that you have to instill and the child is like a rock like the scholars say that anything that you engrave upon that rock from a young age will never ever be erased the du'as, and you think about yourselves, you know, the surah fatiha that you learned, the kalima that you learned, all of these things that you learned from a young age, you never forget them. The eating du'a, the milk du'a, the sleeping du'a, they become a part of who you are. So that's something that we need to focus on, the, the, the character building of, the, uh, of our children. Not only the Islamic side, but also the sort of bigger picture is something that you have to take care of. You have chosen you know, often to have children, and but you have definitely chosen to raise them in this society. You've chosen to live in the UK, you've chosen to reside here. All of these choices that you've made, now you have to ensure that the choices that you make are you're protecting yourself as much as possible from any possible contingencies that might occur in the future. So if we lived in an Islamic country, maybe things would be different. A, a child would be exposed on a daily basis to the adhan and to the masjid and they'd know all of these things when you church choose to raise your child in a non-muslim society now you have that added responsibility that you can't assume that your child will pick it up from the local you know person down the road or from the neighbor or from the shopkeeper no in fact they might end up doing the opposite so you try even harder now that principles of 
truthfulness, of sincerity, of never lying, of never breaking your promise. These things that are the Prophet ﷺ was the best of examples for, you teach from a young age and you yourself are a living embodiment of that. You can't be telling your children not to lie and then you know, you're lying yourself or you're swearing yourself. It's just not possible. Your child is not going to listen to what you say. They are going to take on what you do. So, in, like I said, in, in a non-Muslim society, the obligation is even higher, the responsibility is even higher, choosing the right school for them, doing all of your research, what this school is going to teach them, who the teachers are going to be. Don't ever take a back seat when it comes to the upbringing of your children. And I know there's so many things that happen in our lives. You have to deal with the house and the bills and the cooking and the cleaning. And there is so much going on. But if you relax, even for a short moment in these crucial years of your child's life, it's possible that that one moment of neglect is going to be the one chance that shaitan will come and creep in and ruin the the, the, bi'a, the disposition of your child. This disposition that Allah created them on purity, upon tawheed, upon ikhlas. And you tried your best, you know, as a, as a young mother to instill these things in them. But now that they've reached school age, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, you start becoming relaxed. You know, it's not possible. You can't do that. Because the obligation doesn't stop at a certain age. It's going to continue all the way to teenage years, up until they get married. Obligation as a mother is still going to be there, which is why it's a very, very, you know, we're not underestimating how difficult this path of motherhood or fatherhood is. No, it's extremely difficult. But at the same time, it comes with extreme joy. If you ask, you know, I'm not a mother myself, but I have nieces and nephews. So I know a percentage of the joy that comes from children, you know, seeing them grow up and the words that they say and teaching them and all of these things. You know, there's, there's no greater or more pure bond that Allah has created in this dunya than that of mother and child. So it's a great blessing without a doubt, but it comes with the responsibility. So we can't lax, we can't be relaxed in that regard. Always be on the ball, who your child is meeting, who their friends are, what they're learning in school, what they're learning in madrasa. All of it, you know, as a mother, you have to take on that responsibility. But don't see it as a, um, like a, as a negative thing. See it as part of the package. You know, Allah's given me a child. I had to feed them. I had to give them a roof over their head. I also have to do these things with equal importance as well. So upbringing... The Islamic side of it, the general, you know, uh, moral side of it, the, the character building, etc. And then from a dunyawi side as well, we try, of course, to give our children the best of what we can. Not spoiling them, because, you know, often parents, you know, especially parents that came into this country, they were raised on poverty, you know, we didn't have much. And then when your child is born, you want to give them everything that you never had which is fair enough, but if you're doing that at the expense of them experiencing gratitude, then you're doing them a disservice. <coughs> you have to teach your child that sometimes you have to work for things, that sometimes you're not going to have everything that you wanted, sometimes you have to share, sometimes you have to look after the people in your community. These are the things that long-term the child will appreciate rather than just giving, 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 money, money, money being thrown at them, but no time being invested in them. That's, you know, extremely uh, detrimental if we take that route. Choosing the right child, uh, the, the right school for your child, helping them to make the right choices when it comes to college, university. Not imposing upon them, because sometimes we, we have to understand that the world that we live in is changing rapidly on almost a daily basis. 
You know, when I was a child, the world makeup was very different, the community that we're in. And now I see that the challenges my nieces and nephews have are so different to what I had. You know, those of you that are a bit older here, it was so different, you know, back home. It was so different when you came into the country and now it's so different today. And I know in 10 years time, 20 years time, that it'll be totally different again. The challenges keep changing. So if you are imposing the same, you know, sort of standards and the same way of thinking upon your child, because that's the way that you were brought up, the child isn't going to benefit. In fact, they might end up rebelling and you might not be doing them a service. You have to educate yourself on the society. And this is something that often when we think about Islamic sort of religiosity, we don't think about the dunya side of things. But just to give you an example, you know, if a person was to study the Islamic sciences, you know, they want to become an alim or an alima. And then after that, they want to, you know, study further and maybe become a mufti. They want to become a qadi. One of the requirements to become a mufti is not only the Islamic education, you need to know your fiqh and your Quran, your hadith, your tafsir inside out. You need to master the Arabic language. You need to be a person of taqwa. All of these things make sense. But another requirement is that this scholar has to know the way that the society works. What kind of transactions are we dealing with? What kind of social you know, norms are happening in our society? All of these things, if you as a scholar don't know them, you can't benefit your society because they're gonna come with questions and you're not gonna know what's going on and you're just gonna give them blanket answers that might not be correct in the eyes of Allah. Likewise, as a parent, if you don't know what's happening in society, how computers work, social media, phones, and I know it's difficult because things are changing, like I said, rapidly. But we have to keep on top of it so that you know what your children are accessing, what they're being exposed to. It's important. Even learning the language, I would say, you know, it's. and I'm not pointing the blame at anybody. Everybody has their own challenges. But it's not correct in a way to have been in a society, to be been in a country for many, many years and not picked up on the language of the people. You know, how are you going to liaise with your children then, with their teachers, with the doctors, with, with society in general? It's important that as a mother, you have that drive and that focus to better yourself. And by doing that, you will better your children. They will see a mother that has, you know, ambitions, that has goals, that is always trying to get better, that is, you know, always increasing her connection with Allah. This will give motivation to the child as well. Okay, so that's also important. And then, you know, the cycle is going to begin again. Your child, inshallah, will become of age when they're looking to get married and then you guide them to finding a right spouse. And, you know, the, the circle of life, as it were, it will begin again. But the key things to remember is that start early. It is never too early to start planning for, for parenthood. It's never too early to start preparing for pregnancy, etc. You don't have to wait until a certain point in your life. Start with the du'as, like we mentioned. Start with, um, you know, choosing a right, the correct partner. In your pregnancy, make sure that all bad traits you are eliminating and you are taking in, absorbing as much good as possible in terms of nutrition and in terms of spiritual nutrition as well. That when that child is born, there is no rest almost. And I know mothers will agree here. Even after your children have got children, there is no rest for mothers. But you can keep that, you know, that drive going because at the end of it, you know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to reward for every single step, every single sleepless night, every single, you know, suckle that the child did on the mother's breast, every drop of milk that you gave them. You know, every contraction pain, every waking up in the morning, making them breakfast, food, all of these things we can't enumerate. You know, you wouldn't be able to write down everything that you've done for a child. 
as a child, I would ever be able to write down what my mother and father have done for me, everything that they've given me. But we know that Allah is watching and Allah is recording. So always make dua for your parents and make dua for the children that you have and the children that inshallah you know, Allah will give that you don't have at the moment as well as the children of our friends and our family and the Muslim Ummah in general. I will stop there. If we've got any questions, we can take them. And if not, then Barakallahu uh, Feek for attending. I hope you all benefited, inshallah.